I wondered had I really oversold the Hubble. I have to admit that since I have been convinced that I didn't. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Nancy Roman, it's her birthday today, because it's May the 16th today as we record this. Would have been. It's the first birthday without her, in fact, because she died this Christmas. The Christmas just gone at 93. Well, it turns out, Matt and Harriet, she was a bit of a legend. Before we talk about Nancy, let's talk about another legend that's joined us. Harriet. (laughs) <laughs> Harriet Brettel. long lost Hello, friends. it's great to talk to you again. <laughs> yeah, long, long time. So, Harriet, you, you're going to join us for the entire episode. I, I am. I'm thrilled to be here and talk about space. It's my favourite thing to do. Excellent. So, we it's been ages since we had you on. Can you give us a really condensed just sentence about what you've been up to? Oh, God. You know, I feel like every time I join your podcast, some, like something big changes in my life. So, yeah. I'm to keep these things scheduled, to keep things interesting. Um, so yeah, so what am I doing now? So I work as a business analyst for a company called Astroscale. So we are looking to address the challenge of space debris. Um, so since I talked to you, I have moved back from California, got my master's in planetary science, um, and now I am living in sunny Oxfordshire. Beautiful. And I'm glad to say, Harriet, your uh, English accent has returned. It's come back. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> that <laughs> we were a bit worried not many california quirks left yeah just just ask me to talk about jupiter jupiter saturn jupiter <laughs> <laughs> oh that's awesome. brilliant well it's great to have you back and we're going to go into some uh space facts later on but let's start with that quote nancy grace roman that harriet how, how do you like how do you like nancy because i'm reading through the notes here and she's she's pretty phenomenal right it's incredible so you know i had to confess i i hadn't really heard of, of nancy roman before you you uh, mentioned that she was going to be the kind of profile of the day and it's incredible she was literally the mother of hubble and had such a key role in uh, developing and making the Hubble Space Telescope happen. So in, just imagine the amount of science that we have to to thank for, for her. I, I do like the fact that she's called the mother of Hubble, and Hubble's often called the father of cosmology. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit confusing. So, so that kind of makes her the grandmother of cosmology, although she's not really Edwin Hubble's mother. I that would like be that silly. That kind of makes sense. <laughs> so, she's uh yeah she's the the mother of the hubble space telescope we should kind of make make that make that obvious because yeah she she worked at nasa but like, i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna go through her journey to get get to to be the mother of hubble and it's quite an amazing one so her, her dad was a scientist and her mother actually was the one that took her out for evening strolls to look up at the stars and she got so into the stars that she formed an astronomy club at the age of 11. <laughs> That's amazing. Imagine that. What, what what are you doing tomorrow night? You want to come over to my astronomy club? I love that. And, uh, <laughs> and of course, we, we talk that this is, of course, in the 30s and 40s. So it's a long, long time ago. She was born in 1925. So this is in the 30s, early 40s. And uh, she says her first encouragement, and that's in inverted commas, was the uh, physics department chairman in the school said to her, I usually try to talk women out of majoring in physics, but I think maybe you might make it. What a compliment. <laughs> yeah, yeah so, that's kind of, uh, mm, yeah, very of the time, shall we say. Yeah, but uh, she went to Sw- Swarthmore College 1946, so she's still quite young, so she s- accelerated into that and got her Bachelor of Arts in Astronomy, and then amazingly, at the age of 24, got a PhD from the University of Chicago in 1949. I mean, remember last week we were said that Cambridge was only giving women degrees in 1948. So that's a major, major achievement. Yeah, it's not bad going, is it? She's got a little bit of fortune. So she has this lucky star that she calls a lucky star because I've been reading some of the things that she's written. She, She wrote some brilliant blog posts before she died. She's really an amazing person. But she wrote about A.G. Draconis and how... 
she was just observing this random star, A.G. AG Draconis, taking some measurements, spectrum measurements, emission spectrum measurements, and they'd completely changed from the last time that they were measured. So she wrote a few pages of notes, and then I guess that she kind of forgot about it a little bit. And then during her time at Chicago, she realized that she wasn't going to get tenure as an astronomy research researcher in the department. So she changed her specialization and went to the Naval Research Laboratory and became the head of microwave spectroscopy, which must have been a pretty new science at the time. But she was then one of only three Americans invited to this Soviet observatory opening in Armenia because the boss of this observatory uh, had read her notes on A.G. Draconis and was completely uh, beguiled by it, I guess. So when she came back, all the NRL leaders had asked her whether she could give these series of lectures uh, about her visit to this astronomy place. And she became a kind of minor celebrity in, in these astronomy circles, particularly at the NRL. So NASA had formed two years earlier, and the, they'd kind of co-opted all the scientists from the NRL and of course they knew her and went to her and said oh do you know anyone who wants to set up a program in space astronomy and so she took that as a kind of oh uh, they mean me and so she couldn't resist even though she wanted to be a research astronomer she just couldn't resist being able to influence astronomy for the for the next few decades and so she left and that's where she developed over 20 satellites that eventually led to her really sort of being the mother of the Hubble Space Telescope, as we said earlier on. God, that's so amazing. Yeah, and she was involved in Apollo, Mercury, and all those sort of things, lots of uh, rockets and instrumentation on those missions. Uh, and this is what she says at the end of it. She says, I am glad I ignored the many people who told me that I could not be an astronomer. I have had a wonderful career in a field that I love. There we go, have that. That's a great statement. What's the amazing thing is this this Adri Draconis, her lucky star, it's only in the unusual state that she measured it every 100 days, and that only happens every 10 to 15 years. So it's this thing called a symbiotic star, uh, which is a giant star and a white dwarf. In a, It's a binary system. Very, very odd behavior. Uh, that only happens very, very rarely in, in a large time period. So she really was lucky that she happened to be the person looking at it. But, of course, she's the person that recognised that it was interesting. Wow. A.G. Uh, Draconis also sounds like a Harry Potter spell, Harry doesn't it? Potter. It really does. <laughs> oh, dear. Wow, that is incredible. There was a guy called Edward J. Weiler who worked on the Hubble telescope with her, and he says... NASA called her the mother of the Hubble telescope, often forgotten by our younger generation of astronomers who make their careers by using Hubble Space Telescope. Regretfully, history has forgotten a lot in today's internet age, but it was Nancy in the old days before the internet and before Google and email and all that stuff who really helped to sell Hubble Space Telescope, organise the astronomers who eventually convinced Congress to fund it. Let's definitely get a picture up on the blog, I think. We should put yeah. the little Nancy Lego figure. Have you seen the Women of NASA Lego sets? No. They were released a couple of years ago. They're now collector's items. If you kept them in the box, they're worth quite a bit of money. But Nancy was one of those little Lego figures. That's awesome. We need that. And I'm currently drinking out of my Matt and Jamie as Lego figures mug. What else are you going to drink out of? <laughs> it's the ultimate mug. Harriet, we'll have to send you one. Yeah, I mean, I don't come on these podcasts for nothing, you know, wow. guys. <laughs> I can hear the envy in your voice. <laughs> that's funny because I was just writing out a check for 20000 but if a cup will do it, then that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's made me really happy. Yeah. My, palp my heart palpitation's gone away. This is it. We, back, Matt is back on track. In 1962, she was in Life magazine as one of the 100 most important young people. Wow. Yeah. Well, there you go. I think that we're remembering her now. So if you're talking about Hubble telescope, symbiotic star systems, high-velocity stars, spectroscopic parallaxes, or Ursa Major moving group, then as you say, Jamie, doff your cap to Nancy. Doff the cap. I mean, and who doesn't? Let's be honest. Who goes a day without speaking about, you know, spectroscopic parallaxes, Matt? I mean, really? I bet, well, Harriet probably doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'd quite like to know what it is. Can you give me a brief 
synopsis? Are you asking me? <laughs> yes. Come on, Harriet. You've got the certificate from Caltech. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm quickly going to the, the, the Google. Parallaxes <laughs> are. I don't. I don't know what a spectroscopic parallax is, though. So, parallax is just you know a, a method for measuring distances. Um, I don't know what the spectroscopic side of it actually means. It makes mm. two of us. I'm glad we're in the same boat. Maybe that can be an exercise for the listener. There we go. Answers on a postcard. <laughs> I don't feel so dumb now. That's good. Yeah, we can't know everything. We can't know everything. Can't know everything. Although Jamie tries, don't you? Oh, here we go. There's a lot of space out there, Matt. <laughs> there is a lot of space out there and there's a lot of stuff out there to know. Oh, knowledge is so specialised these days. The eagle-eared, is that right? The eagle-eared? Or is it just eagle-eyed? What's the, what's the ear equivalent of eagle-eyed? Uh, yeah, good question. Let's say owl-eared. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the owl-eared out of you will go, oh, hang on a second. We normally have like a person born on the day the podcast comes out. But you know what? 17th of May, nothing happened in space. It's the least eventful day in space. I cannot find anything that happened on the 17th of May. You know what? I've got a great one for you. It's not, it's not in the past, but maybe it's making history. Because this 17th of May 2019, this mm-hmm. will be the launch of the star, first round of Starlink. SpaceX. Oh, uh, yes. Yes, 17th. Yeah, that, that is absolutely true. It's a busy week, isn't it? Yeah, so you have to celebrate that next year. Yeah. Yes. No, no absolutely. <laughs> uh, it is an interesting thing about Starlink. It's going up on a Falcon 9 rocket that's been flown twice before. So it'll be its third flight. And it's th- flown from the Cape before. And it's flown from Vandenberg before. How about that? That is awesome. So this is, yeah, the Starlink, that's the first phase of the deployment. So it's going to be, yeah, 60 going up on this first launch. Um, But that means there's going to be 24 Falcon 9 launches because this first phase of Starlink needs to loft 1,584 satellites into this 550-kilometer orbit. Is that about one and a half times higher than the space station, about-ish? Yeah, the space station's about 350 to 400 kilometres, I think. So it's, it's above the space station, yeah. Above the space station. It's inclined at 53 degrees, which is slightly less than the inclination of the space station, I think. So there's going to be 24 launches like this, just, to, just for this first 550-kilometre shell. Then there's another shell of these uh, satellites that's going to get this composed of 7,518 satellites. And that's going to be a much lower orbit, 340 kilometers. That's really low. And then another set of 2,841 at 1,200 kilometers. So in in total, it's going to be 12,000 satellites or thereabouts in this mega constellation. Yeah, that's a lot. It's mind-blowing. It's absolutely mind-blowing. It really is. And if you think about the fact that there's only about 2,000 operational satellites in orbit right now, that's a, you know, that's an order of magnitude increase in the number of satellites <laughs> that we're going to see, which is I- incredible. And that's just, yeah, that's just from one company taking a punt that there might be a market for this global internet. Mm. And, and, of course, there's lots of competitors that are entering the market. OneWeb. Even Jeff Bezos as well, which who we will undoubtedly be talking about a little bit later on <laughs> with his, what was his one called? Project Kuiper. Yes. yes. I believe so. That's one to watch. Someone, someone somewhere I would think is going to get their fingers burnt. It's a little bit like the, the race for small satellite launchers where everyone's trying to build them. And, of course, they're going to be oversubscribed and you're going to have a few winners and quite a few losers. Mm, very true. I think someone's going to make some serious cash as well. What do you reckon? Well, wouldn't it be awful if, if at some point someone developed a technology for a global, very fast global internet that didn't require satellites? Oh, yeah. True. Like doing it from the ground. Yeah. I'm going to do it. <laughs> Jamie's going to do it. So there yeah. we go. So After we finish recording, I'm going to get my pen and paper out and I'm going to draw up my first rough plans. 
<laughs> I think when you look into it, Jamie, it's going to be a bit more technologically uh, challenging than you first thought. No, I've been lulling you into a full sense of security by playing this role of someone who doesn't know that much about space and technology. No, okay. And then I'm going to build the first ground-based global internet. That'll show them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. The, the only other space day around the 17th of May is, of course, Helen Sharman's first flight into space, the first person from the United Kingdom to go into space on the 18th of May, my brother's birthday. Happy birthday, Richard. One of our favourite guests ever, Helen Sharman, the great Helen Sharman. We need to get her back on as well, don't absolutely, we? Absolutely, absolutely. Harriet, did you, did you know that she also helped develop Mars ice cream? What? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Wow. A woman of many talents. Yeah, that's, be- that's, be- Absolutely. that's before she went into space. Turned Mars bars into ice cream. Wow. <laughs> and it's even space is themed as well. There's a- yeah, I know. Weird. Exactly. It's weird. <laughs> it would have been definitely worse if it was a Snickers, wouldn't it? Wouldn't have worked. No, no, it would have been just awful. <laughs> Although it may have been called Marathon back then. No, nah, but see, that's not true. It's something I read about this that that's actually not true, that it was called Marathon. I think that it was just some like legal name thing that had to happen, but it didn't use, Snickers never used to be called Marathon. What? I'm going to look that up because <laughs> I read it a couple of days ago. I distinctly remember for my entire childhood, Snickers were called Marathon Bars. Snickers. <laughs> anyway, marathon. let's not get into this argument. You might have digressed. <laughs> you guys carry on. I'll Google this. <laughs> so, Harriet, did you hear about Artemis? I did, yeah. I mean, my gosh, there's so much that's happened in the last couple of weeks in the space world, right? It's... um. Well, yeah, this is just the last week. I mean, this is just ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, it's, and, and it's... This is why Jamie and I keep wanting to make a 20-minute podcast and it ends up being an hour long every time yeah. because yeah. all these people out there doing space stuff, it's so irritating. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I mean, we've got Artemis. We had, what was the Blue Moon announcement? Was that this? Yep, yep, that, that was in the last seven days, yes. Oh, my goodness, yeah. Well, lots of moon-related um, news. It's it, It's exciting. Yeah, so it's yeah, it's full on for the moon, isn't it? So yeah, the so Artemis is the name that Jim Bridenstine has revealed for this moon soon getting to the moon for 2024, and of course there's there's some historical reasons why Artemis would be chosen. Artemis is the sister of Apollo. That is nice, and and Apollo is. Um, has got nothing to do with the moon, whereas Artemis is the goddess of the moon. Yeah. Hence, Artemis has been used a lot for moon stuff. For example, Andy Weir's last book, Artemis. Did you read that, Harriet, by the way? Oh, you know what? I got it for my dad for Christmas, and I stole it off him once he finished it, but I haven't got around to uh, reading it yet. Oh, I, I won't spoil it then. Okay. <laughs> I was just about to go into what I thought of it, but I won't spoil it for you. But I, I personally, I don't think it was as good as as the Martian. Mm. But it, but it, it had some moments. It was quite good. It's quite fun. I mean, Artemis is a name of a NASA, a current NASA program anyway, as well as some satellites that are orbiting the moon called Artemis. It's another backronym. Oh yes. I can't remember what the backronym is. Oh. But it's a pretty cheeky one. It's probably like, you know, um, aerial remote testing in emerging moon in situ. Yeah, nice. something. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, that's a very <laughs> that's a very good guess. It is, it is definitely something like that. I think it's got something to do with the plasma around the moon. Hmm. The, yeah, and the electrical interference and stuff. So it's, yeah, I wonder what... I can't remember what it is. Well, it's something for the, again, something for the listeners to do. We're giving them a lot of homework this time. (laughs) It's a lot of homework. So, Jamie, how much have NASA asked for to get to the moon sooner? Uh, I believe it's 1.6 billion, isn't it? Yep, 1.6 billion. Mm. Even though the figure of 8 billion was being banded around last, last month. So, it doesn't sound like it's enough. I was going to say, you know, even though it's a lot of money, for this, seems a bit bit shy, doesn't it? Mm. And in reading Eric Berger's report on this, uh, three sources have said that that $1.6 billion is going to come from the Pell Grant Reserve, which helps low-income students pay for college. 
which isn't good, is it? No, that's really not good. So, uh, Harriet, have you been following this Moon Soon 2024, the whole the whole thing? Yeah, I've been following, but not that closely. Um, it seems very ambitious, but then you know you get companies like Blue Origin coming out of the coming out of the blue, pun pun, saying, <laughs> um, <laughs> like, "Oh, by the way, we've just happened to have been working on a lunar lander for the last three years. Here it is." Um, so you know, maybe these things can work. Yeah, I I'm deeply dubious about the whole thing i think i think it could be i mean it's 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 i'm trying not to get swept up by the excitement of it because if it if it's gonna happen like 2024 would be absolutely incredible but i can't help feeling it's a bit like when you've got a really bad boss and he hasn't really been paying attention to the company and then he he, he joins a board meeting one afternoon and and essentially chucks one of those kind of grenades into the <laughs> into the meeting where it's like we're going to do this and everyone's going ah oh, no we, we were kind of happy with the 2028 version of this and now this is we're going to have to change so many plans now that all the stuff that we were just getting on top of and it's and it's it's actually going to screw us up because we're not going to make 2024 and as a result, it's it's actually going to put 2028 even in jeopardy. Mm. It's really not good, is it? Yeah, I, I don't think it's a good thing. I mean, I suppose if there's extra funding coming in, as long as that funding's not, you know, coming from somewhere else that's probably more important. Well, sp- that's the thing about this Pell Grant Reserve. That's deeply worrying. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, well, it just seem, it seems pretty nasty, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I, I can't. Uh, you know, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it's so that it, it kind of breaks down into um, this 1.6 billion. They they say that it's not going to come from other NASA programs. That there will be a kind of bell curve of funding that's required. So it's going to it's going to escalate. So it, it maybe it will go up to eight billion one year extra. So who knows? But so it's it's a lot of money. Uh, and only 132 million of which is going to go to uh, the exploration technology, this ISRU in situ resource utilization. So, yeah, Lunar Gateway is going to get uh, sort of reduced to save a bit of money and to make it kind of more moon orientated. And Gersten Meyer said that uh, he would learn the lessons learnt from commercial cargo, commercial crew, etc., to inform the future commercial partnerships for this particular um, endeavour, of which the most important is CLPS, C-L-P-S, not to be confused with Crumpsall Lane Primary School. Definitely not. <laughs> which is a different CLPS altogether. It's the Commercial <laughs> commercial Lunar Payload Service Programme, fixed price contracts for creating these rovers uh, and and science exploration landers for NASA, which I'm assuming this blue moon falls into, would fall into that category. So maybe um, Jeff Bezos is now going to be applying to get that funding, that commercial lunar payload service program funding. Mm. What do you reckon? You know what? In the past, I've made these like predictions about what's going to happen in space. And then, you know, they can be terribly right and terribly wrong. So I'm kind of like, you know, when you, you're, you're watching like a um, like a crime thriller or something, I've got to the point now where I'm like, I'm not even going to try and guess who, who it is. You know, just I'm just going to watch and enjoy the experience of going through it. <laughs> Do you know what? I, it, it's quite funny. As we've been doing this podcast, I know exactly what you mean. In, you, it, the story, particularly if if you think like a year and a half ago, we were talking about NASA's return, you know, NASA going to Mars. That was the journey to Mars was all NASA was talking about. And then suddenly now it's switched to the moon and now it's switched to moon 2024. And this is all in the backdrop of everything being massively delayed. Hmm. You've got to admit, it's pretty worrying, isn't it, that that it looks like we're not even going to get uh, Americans being able to fly people up into low Earth orbit this year, which is now like three or four years late. <laughs> so mm-hmm. the thought of getting people on the moon by 2024 just seems insanely 
it ambitious. Yeah, you know it what, does. though? I remember one time I came on your show before and we did this grand, like, what, what do we think the big things are going to happen in, like, the next 10 years or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I might have been particularly bold about us going back to the moon. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that and see, like, what what. <laughs> for, but maybe I caught this. Whoa. Whoa. I think this could be true, you know. If I can find it, I might edit that in. Uh, well, only edit it in if it's right. <laughs> no, I'm going to edit it in if it's wrong. You, you, can't, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> Harry, you really want this interplanetary podcast mug, don't you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think you, should, you think you're going to have to get it if you predicted this right. <laughs> There's a kind of timeline for all this. SLS 2020, that uncrewed Orion spacecraft. 2022, uh, an, a manned Orion spacecraft. Uh, 2023... <laughs> some landings on the moon by some of these people like Jeff Bezos, perhaps. And then 2024, Exploration Mission 3, which will deliver crew to the moon. And to include the first women to walk on the lunar surface, hence Artemis. If that timeline pans out, we're all going to be happy. Totally happy. Wow. Matt, do you think, oh, should we have a bet now? Mm? I'm going to bet uh, you a pint of beer. Mm-hmm that they are going to get boots on the moon by 2024. Harriet, how much are you willing to bet? We have people back on the moon by 2024. A human boot on the moon by 2024. American boot. Yeah, what if the Chinese win? I was going to say, China, yeah, no, easy. No, China aren't going to, China aren't, (laughs) (laughs) it's just ridiculous. They haven't, (laughs) they've never done it and they haven't got a vehicle. I think China's 2030s. But well, you you can add that to the bet if you want. I think I'm going to get drunk here. Matt, what do you say? I say I'm willing to bet that the first American boot on the moon will not be before 2028, and I'll buy well, either of you a pint. Well, then which, I'll buy you both a pint. I if I'm bet wrong. in the middle, and I will say I bet that the first, the next American boots on the ground of the of the moon will be between 2024 and 2028. It's not bad. That's not bad. Okay. Okay. I like it. The base is covered now. I will have a nice IPA, please, from both of you. So, Harriet, tell us a little bit about Space Junk. Oh, uh, happy to. Great great pivot there. Uh, Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so uh, maybe this is related to the, I, I guess it's not really a new job anymore. I've been doing this since January, but um, I've been working for, as I mentioned, a company called Astroscale. So we're a startup um, based out of Japan primarily. Our headquarters are in Japan. I am working in our UK office and we've recently opened up an office in the US as well in Denver. Um, But essentially what we are trying to do is ensure space sustainability. Um, And the reason for that is we've got all these satellite companies that are launching satellites into space. They do incredible things. As you know, they um, provide us with Internet, with communications. They enable us to use GPS, Google Maps, uh, probably Skype that we're using now. You know, all these things that we use on a day-to-day basis that rely on satellites. Um, But the challenge that we have is that once satellites break um, or fail in orbit, um, they are typically um, left there. And so there's a kind of increasing challenge of or problem of of space debris, space junk orbiting our our Earth um, in a way that is kind of increasingly unsustainable number of satellites going up into space. Uh, we are trying to develop a plan to bring back those failed satellites safely to ensure that people can still continue to use satellites, continue to use um, space in the way that they do now for decades to come. That is awesome. We love that. Yeah. So it's, it's been really interesting. Uh, you know, I've, I've learned a huge amount about um, space debris and, uh, you know, being sustainable in space. Um, and so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of challenges to overcome, but it's a it's a really interesting uh, problem to be to be trying to solve, and uh, I'm I'm enjoying it a lot so far. What are the challenges that face you over the next kind of year or so? Oh, great question. I mean, so the, the big we we well, this stuff is hard, right? Space is inherently hard, and 
we're, we're trying to build technology that no one has ever built before. So we're looking at building chaser spacecraft that are able to go up into space, attach two failed satellites, and then deorbit them safely. And we've actually got our first in-orbit demonstration taking place next year. It's called ELSA-D, which of course is an acronym. Um, it stands for End of Life Services by Astroscale Demonstration. Ah. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. Okay, it's good, it's good. <laughs> um, so we're going to be launching this um, the second half of next year, I think, and the idea is to demonstrate that we can safely attach or dock to a failed satellite. We're going to be launching kind of a dummy test failed satellite up with our own chaser, our, our ELSA, um, and show that we can attach, we can detach uh, again. Um, we'll try a number of different um, docking situations. So one where we have communication with this failed dummy satellite, then one where we, we don't and we don't know where it is, we have to go and find it. And then we're going to introduce some tumbling into this uh, scenario as well. So each time we try and dock, we make it a little bit more difficult. And then at the end of the demonstration, we'll deorbit both of those satellites safely. Um, and the, the first time we'll be able to demonstrate that uh, we, we have the technology and the capability to, to bring down failed satellites. God, that's insane. I'm, I'm assuming that you, you're really familiar with removed debris satellites. Yes, absolutely. So, so what uh, University of Surrey has been doing is, is absolutely fantastic. So they've been testing out a number of different uh, kind of techniques to uh, bring down debris. So they had a successful um, net demonstration last year. And um, I think it was earlier this year they did their demonstration of the harpoon technique, right? Yep. So yep, what yep. we're doing is, is slightly different. One is that we're looking to build this for commercial services in the future. So to be able to, you know, go to satellite companies and bring down their failed their failed satellites. And, and for that, Instead of using a harpoon or a net, we're actually using magnetic plates. So the idea is that when uh, before a satellite is launched, um, a small magnetic plate is attached to the satellite before it goes up. And then we have you know, the counter magnetic plate on our own chaser spacecraft. And that makes it much easier for us to dock with the, um, the failed satellite and bring it down safely. So we're using a slightly de different technique, but... You know, the aim of, of, of what we're doing is, is similar, I guess. So it really sounds like the, the, the British are actually leading the way in this, yeah, getting rid of orbital debris. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on in the UK, which is very exciting. So as I mentioned, our, um, our company, Astroscale, is headquartered in Japan. Um, but And the, the ELSA demonstration that we're launching next year is being manufactured out of Japan. Um, but the license is, licensing for that, that mission is actually being done from the UK. We're building a, um, uh, a national center here at Harwell to um, do the ground station segment of that mission. So all of the mission operations will be done from the UK. Um, so there's, there's lots, of, lots of stuff happening here. You've got the tech demos that um, University of Surrey have been doing, which is fantastic. So so yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on here, which is which is really exciting. Yeah, it really is a, a really important problem, isn't it? That a, a nut that needs cracking. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of those challenges that we have. Is um, this is a problem that I think everyone can recognise that it is an issue, and it's going to become an increasingly big issue in the future. Um, but you know, unfortunately, people don't really want to address it until you get that giant catastrophic collision that makes people take action. So, you know, you see this in in other areas where you have this so-called tragedy of the commons, like the environment or the oceans. You know, people will uh, put leave plastic waste in the oceans until you know all of the fish have died, or we'll pollute the atmosphere. Um, until it gets so bad that we we have no choice to do anything about it. And so what Astroscale, what we're really trying to do is be proactive and create the, that technology that allows us to to do something about the problem of space debris before it becomes that that big catastrophic issue. Yeah, it, it, it was quite encouraging, wasn't it, with the, the Elon Musk's Starlink, that they actually applied for a lower orbit as well. And I, I'm assuming that was to assist 
the fact that yeah they become less of a problem because they're that that sec that low shell presumably they they would naturally deorbit anyway because they've still got atmospheric drag. Do you think that that was the thinking um, behind it? Yeah, that? it may well have been. And so when we think about low Earth orbit, which is what we're kind of primarily focused on right now, you're talking about so anywhere from you know maybe 350 if you've got uh, propulsion on your satellites all the way up to, say, 1,400 kilometres. That's kind of like the, the active range of, of low Earth orbit. And depending on how far up you are is a, is a kind of contributing factor of how long it takes for your failed satellite to to come back down and burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. So obviously, you know, the Earth's atmosphere is much thicker the lower you go. And so a kind of international guideline that we have um, in the space industry right now is that satellites should deorbit or have a plan to deorbit safely within 25 years of their failure. Um, and if you have no active plan, that puts you roughly at a limit of about 500 to 550 kilometers. So that means that if your if your spacecraft is below that, typically the 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 drag of the atmosphere at that altitude means that you you are likely to deorbit within that 25 year time frame. SpaceX uh, mentioned that they were going to undoubtedly have problems with this first batch of satellites, and so I, I guess it kind of makes it reasonably safe is that they will lose contact and lose propulsion on some of them and therefore being at that 550 means that they won't be a significant long-term problem is that is that right is that my is my thinking yeah, on that right? so i i think that that is that is most likely the argument that that, that spacex are advocating and i think that it, it's good that we have satellite operators aware of the issue of space debris and are looking for ways to to mitigate that risk Astroscale is is kind of here to um, provide a kind of backstop to those services because obviously a lot of these satellites are going to have uh, propulsion, which means that if they're still operational, they'll be able to, to deorbit themselves. There may well be like a small percentage of failed satellites at the tail end of that distribution, whereby they fail in a way that that they can't be brought down by anything other than. Uh, you know, a third party coming in. And that's where we can provide that that backstop to ensure that uh, we don't have failed satellites left up there. No matter how much planning you put in, there's always the scenario where, well, it's gone wrong in a way that we can't do anything about it. In steps, Astroscale, and you drag the thing down. That, that's the plan. <laughs> it sounds like a pretty important plan because I, I was in uh, Damstadt uh, and and they've got a they've got a, a, a debris control unit in that in in uh, uh, ESA there, and and the chap there was sort of saying that one of the orbits there is a, a Kessler event already happening. So that's 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 pretty. Oh wow! Hey, we haven't even talked <laughs> so about like Kessler syndrome, which obviously is you know one of the 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 key scenarios that we're, we're trying to avoid, whereby you know you get this um, domino effect, effectively, right where um, you've got enough debris in space such that if two pieces collide, you know, that creates even more debris. Um, and the, the, then, you know, that kind of keeps going and going until you've got a situation where there are so many small pieces up there that um, you, you can't you can't get a <clears throat> you can't move around them. And that that orbit becomes inoperational. Um, one of the challenges that we have is, you know, large pieces of debris. We we can kind of know where they are. Uh, US Stratcom, for example, does a kind of monitoring of large pieces of debris and will alert satellite operators as to if they're getting too close to a piece of debris. So if there's like a potential collision coming up, but they can't track anything that's smaller than than 10 centimeters, really. And that poses a big challenge because, you know, a piece of metal that is five centimeters wide or long can still cause a huge amount of dam damage yeah. to satellite, given you know the speeds that all of these things are, are orbiting around the Earth at. So there's there's the another kind of key angle here is the, the space surveillance and actually you know how well can you track the debris in space? Um, and if you don't know, then there's still that kind of uh, threat of the smaller pieces of debris that we we can't do anything about at this stage. 
Yeah, and and space debris. I mean, it's such a varied a debris field as well. You've got, like Jamie was saying the other day, you've got things like dead monkeys and dead yeah. dogs as part of that debris field. It's quite. Don't get me started. I'll, I'll well up again. Yeah, rocket casings. Uh, you know, it just goes on and on and on, doesn't it? The the stuff that's actually flying around. But like you said, it just takes a fleck of paint uh, to 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 smash a satellite to bits. <laughs> So yes. So it's yeah. one of those things that, you know, it's it's definitely a risk and it's a risk that is only going to get uh bigger over time because, you know, the the more satellites we put up into space, the more debris that we'd expect there to be. And the challenge is, you know, the technology we're working on right now is to bring down, you know, failed satellites. But as far as I'm aware, there, there, there is no tech development in place to try and actually capture, you know, these small fragments because, one, we don't know where mm. they are because we can't track them. And two, you know, it's much harder to, to grab a tiny piece of fragment of metal or a fleck of paint than it is to bring down a whole satellite. So if we wait too long and wait for that debris field to, to break down into smaller and smaller pieces we we might be leaving ourselves with a problem that we can't fix yeah i mean i I just always find it incredible that you have this tracking going on for these tiny bits of metal etc in orbit and that they have to keep moving occasionally move the space station to actually avoid just these tiny bits of debris and and even the the uh, what's it called the copula you know what's the what's the bit of the space station with the windows? Oh, let's just call it the bit with the windows. <laughs> the bit with the windows. That if there's a kind of a debris field that's within a certain area, they have to shut those oh, wow. as well. They have to basically shut the shutters on the windows because yeah, a, a fleck of paint could go straight yeah, through. So I was at the um, the Space Generation Fusion Forum in Colorado Springs last month, which is a young professional event organized by the Space Generation Advisory Council. Um, And we had a talk by Sandy Magnus, who was a NASA astronaut who spent 134 days on the ISS from 2008 to 2009. Um, And she shared an experience she had was when she was on the ISS, they got an emergency control, sorry, an emergency call from mission control alerting them to a so-called red conjunction event, which is essentially, you know, a high risk of, of a debris collision event. Um, so all the astronauts on the ISS had to evacuate to the Soyuz spacecraft um, to wait it out to make sure that there wasn't actually um, a collision um, so that they would be able to um, escape if necessary. But, you know, you can't imagine that the, that must have been a, a terrifying experience, just, you know, waiting in your spacecraft, hoping that you don't get hit. God, so terrifying. That's straight out of gravity, yeah. isn't it? That? Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. We're, we're, we're almost working in the realms of science fiction, right? You've got gravity, you've got uh, Wally as well, you know, trying to yeah. um, prevent this future where, you know, the Earth is completely surrounded by by waste but i don't want it i don't want this to be you know kind of like a, a scare tactic the idea is that we can be proactive about doing something now and that's exactly what we're trying to do you know is 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 solve this problem before it gets too big for us to to be able to do anything about it here, here. i think it's amazing work i will say one thing that's related to that that whole junk thing did you did you know that this week there was an American explorer who's got the record for the deepest ever dive, Victor Vescovo, and he went seven miles into the Mariana Trench. It's the only the third time that humans have gone that deep. In other words, we've gone to the moon far more often. And um, he spent four hours down at that the deepest. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? Seven miles deep. But guess what he found along with sea creatures, etc.? He found a plastic bag and some sweet wrappers. What? It's it's amazing, isn't it? The the human influence is quite uh, quite dramatic. Let's quickly do Blue Moon and let everyone go. So, Harriet, did you did you watch Jeff Bezos's speech I about Blue Moon? I did, and I loved. Yeah, it was it was fascinating. It was really interesting to see, you know, this very well thought through vision of you know a long term future and how. Um, you know, Blue Origin is looking at solving some of these key gateways, I think that he called them, to, 
to make sure that we get that future that that we need. His kind of main push, wasn't it, is that um, when he started Amazon, uh, all the infrastructure for him was in place. He didn't have to invent the internet. He didn't have to invent the postal service, yeah. et cetera. And, he's, and he, he wants to be, he wants this generation to be the people that put the infrastructure in place to build uh, O'Neill cylinders. I thought that was like, whoa, he's going there. Cause it's, it's so sci-fi, isn't it? The O'Neill mm-hmm. cylinder. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's incredible. And I think it's interesting to kind of see his philosophy, which is very much that, you know, the earth is the place that we need to protect and what we need to do is kind of outsource the the heavy industry so that we can maintain what is, you know, without a doubt, the best best place for us all to live. Um, so, you know, it's a very, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting kind of philosophy and you can see how it drives everything that they do. Yeah, I mean, it, it'd be basically put that into us he just said there's basically two big problems one's cheap access to space that he's working on and uh and yeah this being able to utilize resources out in the solar system rather than on earth that there are two kind of barriers for progress which i thought was interesting i mean he said i mean he's kind of said that before in lots of different interviews but this was definitely his ideas condensed into into a into a more coherent uh, a coherent speech. I, I must. I confess, I found his kind of style a little bit boring. It was a bit like watching blue paint dry at times. <laughs> it was like, oh come on. Uh, but but I mean, I, I I loved it. I loved it. I loved. I loved. I, lo- I loved the vision for it. It just there was something old fashioned about it. Didn't did you not did you not feel a kind of it was slightly old fashioned? It kind of seemed like a TED talk to me. Yeah, mate. Yeah, but but I think I'm I'm I think I'm finding TED talks old fashioned now. <laughs> maybe I'm just maybe I'm just becoming too cynical. Thanks to no attention span, Matt. That's your problem. Yeah. <laughs> that that is the problem, Matt. Did you like the uh, the tweet reply from Elon that just said, "Oh, stop teasing, Jeff," with a little <laughs> wink face when he announced, when he announced the vision for space and a moon lander? Brilliant. I, I, all I can say is, I actually genuinely cannot believe how childish the uh, rivalry between Musk and Bezos is, because there was several very thinly veiled um, digs at Elon Musk as well during Jeff Bezos's speech. I noticed, mm. like he gets, he, yeah. he, he said something about there's. There is no uh, reusable rocket that can just be reused. And it's like, well, there kind of is, but you're just not saying it. <laughs> so yeah. it's really weird. Um, but we should mention the Lunar Lander Blue Moon. So that has, even though that, I didn't realize just how much has been talked about this. Even it sort of was first talked about in 2017, but it, obviously we actually got to see it at that event. What were you, what with what what thoughts went through your head, Harriet, when you when when he pulled back the big black curtain for that one? Um, I, it was pretty awesome. It's pretty giant. It's it's huge, right? I mean, I I, I do like Blue Origin's tactic of you know we're we're going to do all this hard work and then you know we're going to show you things when they're ready. There's there's less kind of um, showy hype around things. They kind of let their their tech do the talking. So it'd be interesting to see how long it takes to, to actually get Blue Moon on the moon. That's the thing that worries me with Blue Origin is that that they actually haven't got any proper orbital rockets flying or actual hardware actually doing anything yet other than New Shepard, fair enough. But it's and, and I suppose their rocket engines are doing really well. They're actually managing to sell that. But the uh, even though they're not being used yet, that that's the thing that worries me. Whereas SpaceX say they're going to do stuff, and they've actually been doing it. Like if you think about something like Falcon Heavy, it's actually happened, and we uh-huh. and we actually got to see those boosters doing their little balletic landing. And of course, actually, Harriet, you've you've got your your previous uh, thing where you talked about um, light sale um, for the plant oh. planetary society. That's going up, isn't it? In, in- oh my god. Yes, it's got the launch scheduled. I'm so excited. You know, this has been something that we've been waiting for for ages to get up. Um, so just a recap for, for, for folks who haven't listened to the, the previous podcast, which I think was a good while ago now. But uh, the Planetary Society, which is a 
global nonprofit that supports, you know, citizens um, advancing space exploration, has developed a completely citizen crowdfunded um, light sail project, which is actually going to be launched, I think, on the next Falcon Heavy, so coming up real soon. Um, and the idea for this is to deploy a giant solar sail in space with the idea of um, being able to orbit around the Earth and, and demonstrate that you know, solar sailing is a technology that is, is potentially viable for, for future missions, um, which is hugely exciting. So I'm, I'm really, really excited to see this come to fruition. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I, I, that's going to be really, really brilliant, isn't it? A, a citizen science thing on that scale. It's going to be fab. Yeah, so well done on that one. Absolutely. I, yeah. yeah, congrats. Are you going to try and make it to the launch? Um, I think that might be challenging. Uh, but yeah, I know. Well, you know, Florida isn't exactly the place you can like hop over to for an afternoon, is it? No, I know. That's why we need UK launches. Just you know, <laughs> oh, you're going to pop up to Scotland and see a launch. Yeah, just going to go visit Matt in Cornwall and go see a Virgin Galactic takeoff. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. That's why you move there. I. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, I might might see them flying over. It's going to be great. <laughs> so yeah uh, thanks very much for joining us harry we really have to wrap it up because it's i'm looking at the clock on my on my recorder here and it's it's just about to go over the hour mark how did that happen yeah we even joked that it was gonna we're not gonna take an hour and we all laughed oh. and now we're at the hour mark yeah <laughs> <laughs> but that's a sign of how much we love you harriet thanks for coming back it's always a pleasure it's always a pleasure yeah thanks very much harry and are you going to buy some oreos that um, Oreo are bringing out uh, Apollo moon landing special edition cookies. I'm definitely, oh. I'm just going to definitely stock up on them. Well, surely you're going to get some free ones now you've endorsed e- them. Matt. Exactly. So Oreo, yeah, send send interplanetary podcasts some free. If you're listening, Oreo, chalky biscuits. Me, Matt, and Harriet will take two cases. Thank you. So, so Harriet, next time you join us, we'll we'll, we'll do it in we'll do it in. Uh, we're coming up to Oxford. We're coming up to Oxford soon, I promise. And you, we can yeah, we can do a proper podcast then. A date on it. Yes, I, we will have to put a date on it. So it'll be soon. Yeah, you're like you're like the next rocket launch. Oh no! Don't say that. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet a pint that Matt doesn't go to Oxford before 2024. <laughs> right, you're on. <laughs> well, that, that's an easy pint that we're having in Oxford this year. In the next Done. couple of months, right, uh, Harriet. Thanks very much. No, it's a pleasure. We've got to wrap this Thank up. Thank you, Harriet. Okay, yeah. Talk to you guys soon. Thank you so much. See you later. Bye. Bye, bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. <laughs> bye, bye.